0: Your defining moments are what make you who you are. And when we are successful in those life-defining moments, we never go back to being that person that we were. The hardest steel is forged in the hottest fire. You know, that's what it's all about, man.
1: back. This is The David Johnson Show, and this is a story about people. But more importantly, this is a story about leadership, relationships, and the relentless drive to accomplish the mission. We are joined today by Rear Admiral Retired Hal Pittman. Thanks for coming on the show, sir.
0: Thank you, David. Great to be here.
1: You have a long story, and whenever people like you come on the show, it's always hard for me to have a pinpoint in where in your life to start. But let's kick this off somewhat from the beginning. Paint the picture of your maybe early years right up to joining the Navy. Sure.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know what? I, uh, I grew up in a, a very blue collar neighborhood, you know, sort of lower middle class and, um, uh, went to public school all my life. And, you know, uh, uh, I went to a community college, started out community college, mm-hmm. uh, after high school, I was an athlete in high school and a, and a class officer, but I went to a community college, and then I transferred to a state university in North Carolina, uh, a college back then that no one had ever really heard of. That was Appalachian State University. Now they're pretty, pretty well known for their football team, but back then, uh, they weren't really well known. And uh, out of there, I, um, it was during my time there that I decided that I wanted to be a Navy officer, And so I applied to officer candidate school and I was rejected and, uh, that hurt, but it was okay. Uh, I decided, uh, to enlist in the Navy because I felt that, you know, um, I felt that by my own, uh, personal ability that I would be able to advance and I would be able to become an officer even if I uh, were to enlist. And so I did that. Uh, so it was I,
1: always the goal of being an officer. You had that goal from day one of enlistment to yeah, eventually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: That was it. It didn't. It didn't. It wasn't something that developed. It was always my plan. And because I didn't reach that in Plan A, I sort of went to Plan B. Sure. And so I enlisted, and uh, you know, I was originally going to go in under the nuclear power program, uh, but then I did my physical, and they told me I was colorblind. So it was a, there was about three jobs that I could actually do. <laughs> And, uh, which also would limit me later on, you know, in the Navy as an mm-hmm. officer. So I wouldn't, wasn't going to be able to drive ships or fly planes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I became a Navy journalist and I went through the training, Hello. uh, for print and broadcast journalism and I was assigned overseas. And, uh, because of my, uh, you know, evaluations and performance, you know, as a junior enlisted guy and then as a petty officer, I was able to eventually uh, get that opportunity to go to officer candidate school.
1: You had to apply, get accepted still yep. at that stage? Yeah, go
0: through the application yep. process and get accepted. And it was, OCS was challenging because it was academically rigorous. Uh, and it was more rigorous than sort of, you know, anything that I had done up until that point. It was more rigorous than college. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I would did a lot of late nights, a lot of, you know, midnight, uh, all nighters for tests and things like that. And, uh, so I ended up, uh, finishing OCS. I graduated in the bottom half of my class. I, I was in the summer class. So it was all these engineers who were coming out of college and, you know, really bright people. And, you know, I was sort of in the, the bottom half of that group. Well, and so, you know, um, uh, but it's about, Just grinding on, just continuing to, you know, do what you got to do to get to your goal. And so I, you know, got through OCS uh, and I went to my training and supply and logistics, spent about six months uh, there. And then I went to my first ship in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii.
1: Oh, nice. You know, it's a funny story. I remember the very the first time we met one of them, we were having brunch, and you said, I graduated the bottom half of my class, but one of the first to make flag officers. Yeah,
0: well, I, I I was. I was uh, graduated in the probably the lower 40% academically, and I was the first person in my, my OCS uh, class to make flag.
1: Do you feel OCS prepares you to take on leadership roles day one? I mean, are you taught a lot about leadership?
0: So I would tell you this, David. I think the U.S. military in general is this great sort of um, leadership laboratory. Hmm. It is a great system. It is a great system for taking young people, young American men and women uh, from average backgrounds and training them to do extraordinary things. There's not one particular uh, training or element of military service that necessarily prepares you for leadership, but I think it's about putting all the tools together over a period of time. And the military uh, does a great job of taking young people, impressionable young people, teaching them a basic skill set, and then loading them with responsibility over a period of time and taking them to the next level yeah, in- and growing them. Okay. So the military is a system that grows leaders. Interesting. So- did OCS, OCS gave me some very basic tools and then I went to the fleet and it was actually then about learning to actually do the job. You know, I, I had a, a, some some ideas about how to do the job, but doing the job is largely about interacting with people and the people and the teams that you work with. So here I was a junior officer, and having been an enlisted guy, I understood this idea that there were going to be subject matter experts, you know, crusty old chief petty officers and uh, enlisted leaders that knew how to do this thing and had been doing it for a long, long time. And I had not. So I was malleable, and I was willing to take their advice and their counsel On how to proceed and sort of the different specifics of the business of logistics on on a ship at sea.
1: Besides that point of under like looking at those experts on the enlisted side that have been in a long while, do you feel being enlisted prior to officer made you a better officer?
0: I I think it did. Yeah, Yeah. I think it did because I you know it's all about humble roots. I mean, I came (laughs) from very humble roots, and I'll never forget where I came from, growing up on the streets of Baltimore. I mean, you know. uh, and so that helps shape you, but I think there's some other things that that guide and help contribute to your development as a leader in the military. And so you know you've heard folks like General Petraeus talk about sort of the tenets of the strategic leader, and that's the that's the execution of leadership. You know what leaders do, sort of on a on a macro level. Uh, and so and those things are very very important. For being an effective leader. You know, it's about getting the big picture right, communicating the big picture across your team, then executing, you know, the mission doing, you know, putting all the pieces into place and then assessing and going back and doing it over again, you know, getting that, that big mm-hmm. picture, right. What, what you need to do and continuing forward. It's a continuous cycle. So that's about the execution piece, but I'm also, uh, I really believe in the values piece. I, I, you know talk about sometimes what i call values based leadership and that's you know understanding what your own core values are as a human being and being able to distribute those over the execution of leadership as a system
1: if you will when did all that start kicking in though i mean like you said gradually military trains leaders you graduate that wasn't day 1 i mean you no absolutely not no way no way <laughs>
0: this is this is the culmination of you know 30 years of a military right. career and then a career going forward in the civilian sector so you know uh again the military is a system that takes young people and does extraordinary things with them and over time you build people up and so you know you get more skills you learn to lead at a higher level and then if you're successful the military moves you to the next level and if you're not successful You, depending on at what point you are in your career, you either stay there or maybe you get out and you go
1: do something else. What's the – like you said, a culmination of 30-plus years. What's the responsibility level of somebody – like your first position outside of OCS, what level of responsibility are you playing at?
0: at So, you know, as a junior officer, regardless of what service you are in, I mean, you're going to have a group of people, uh, you know, that work for you or with you. And you know, so on board a ship, I was an assistant supply officer, and I had a a, a department of about thirty some people, okay. and I was responsible for their training and development, and uh, and then I had specific teams that I was leading, you know, and then others that I worked sort of uh, in a matrixed way with, because I was still their division officer, regardless of whether. Uh, they were reporting to me for day-to-day assignments right. or not. So, you know, and most junior officers are going to have that same kind of level of experience. They're going to have a handful of enlisted troopers that they'll work with. They're going to have those senior enlisted leaders that are technical professionals, you know, in the business, mm. you know, whatever area Tactically that they're in, whether, in that. Yeah, yep. yeah, whether it's operations or supply or intelligence or whatever. And so, you know, but the the one thing so, listening is very very important, David. So even when you're a 22 year old green officer, it's about listening because the people around you are the ones that are going to be advising you, and your job is sort of to sift through uh, the different pieces of information in order to make cogent decisions on a leadership level. So you got to you know, and even at the four star level. I mean the best four-star leaders that I have served with get all bring all their staff around them and they say, "Okay team, here's the situation." And they lay it out and they say, "I need your best military advice." You know, and and the the those staffers go around one by one offering perspective, you know, to that four-star general or admiral. And at the end, end of the mean, day, that's the way
1: it's done. He or she has to make the call, the so, final decision. Yeah,
0: a- absolutely. That's... So, so that's the, you know, that's the responsibility of a senior leader is, you know, they're the ones that are gonna shape that decision and that strategy moving forward. But the best ones are always highly collaborative and taking that, you know, taking in what the team provides and distilling that and then coming up with a cogent response to whatever the issue uh-huh. is.
1: I don't know if there's a politically correct way to ask this, so I'm just going to ask you. There are some people that can't do that, though, I mean, at that level. Yeah. Right? I mean, there are absolutely. some people that do not have that. I don't know if they, what the word is, the you know, internal fortitude, or but don't have the ability to make that decision. I mean, have you seen that along the way? Well, so I think, so
0: it, it depends on whether you're talking about the military or the civilian sector. Um, I would tell you this, since the military is a system and it raises up people from all different walks of life all different backgrounds you know eventually they they wouldn't be in that position if they weren't if the military as a system didn't think that they were capable of being able to function at that level great point now once in a while somebody slips through
1: you know <laughs>
0: you have occasionally have a bad apple and you know you 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 see this because there are some that go to command and end up being relieved of their command because of you know, uh, mistakes. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, so that happens. Um, but that's uh, that's about accountability and keeping the system on track. So, you know, leaders, military leaders are brought up to be fair, firm, and consistent. Okay, it's not about your emotions. Your emotions are out of it. Uh, none of us can. Fully divorce ourselves from our emotions, but it's about being fair, firm, and consistent.
1: And do you feel military specific, especially maybe at the higher levels? Those decisions are being made to support a mission. So I say I have to support this mission. What decision do I have to make that can best support X, Y, and Z?
0: Well, I mean, what's the what do they say? Mission first, people always. Right. You know, and so it's taking into consideration the the health well-being and morale of the troops but at the same time you've got a very very definitive mission to get done and this is you know in the military it's a life or death mission right sure it is the defense of our nation you know and all of us raised our right hand and swore an oath to defend the country against all enemies foreign and domestic and so uh and there's a camaraderie that's built around that mission at a high level so and and that's something that you may never get in a civilian setting. That's one of the get. things that veterans are so disappointed with or often disappointed with when they transition to the outside because they don't have that same camaraderie that they had in uniform. Sure. Because you're shoulder to shoulder with the person next to you focusing on a, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal, whatever that is, uh, a really, really important mission. And, you know, it's life or death stuff. It's, it's a
1: big deal. We're going to definitely get into that at the end. We were talking right before camera, and you said life-defining moments. What were some of your early life-defining moments after OCS?
0: Yeah, so, um, David, I would tell you, I have a philosophy that your defining moments are what make you who you are. So everybody kind of moves along in life on a certain equilibrium, and then there's these things that happen to us, and they push us harder, and they stretch us farther than we ever imagined and and when we are successful in those life defining moments we never go back to being that person
1: that we were cuz you've proven to your, you've been tested and proven to yourself yeah, you can yeah, do it yeah
0: you know what is it the hardest steel is forged in the hottest fire you know that's what it's all about man and so i'll, I'll give you an example um when i was a navy commander uh I was at the US Naval Forces Central Command 5th Fleet in Bahrain and I was a public affairs chief
1: there. And for us that don't know what a that's commander a, that's is a, a what? lieutenant colonel. Okay, gotcha. Okay?
0: <laughs> lieutenant colonel. And uh so I was the public affairs chief at the Forward Component uh of the Navy focused in on Middle East operations. And um and there was a General John Abizaid who had taken over from Tommy Franks after the the drive into Baghdad uh in 2003 he was looking for somebody to be his public affairs chief and and he was asking for a one-star general and the and i was a, i was at 05 i was a lieutenant colonel level guy and the navy nominated me and hmm. um And I, you know, because of my experiences and some other things, I ended up being the guy that was selected. And so I spent the next two years traveling around with General Abizade in the back of his airplane on all these diplomatic missions and handling his communications and the communications of the entire theater. Wow. uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, the overarching sort of— public affairs position. Let me end up
1: one second. When you say yep. communication, so communication the outside world sees what you're yeah, putting out to the correct. public. The,
0: that, yeah. That's the public communications. Got it. The public affairs, the media, the social media, okay. you know, the messaging about how wow. and, you know, keeping that messaging aligned between your commander and your senior staffers and the White House and the Secretary of and Defense. And you're helping and all to have that. to
1: craft this message. That's right. That's right. It's a big and, deal. You know,
0: <laughs> so you're you know you're sitting there in the in the boss's hip pocket and you're saying, okay, boss, you know, you're getting ready to go in and you know meet with uh, President Mubarak, and afterwards they're going to want to do a press briefing here in the uh, palace in Cairo. So you know, we're going to talk about you know the diplomatic relations and the strong, uh, firm wow. commitment of working with our allies in Egypt, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of stuff, and um, and also. You know, making sure that there's an alignment and an integration with the messaging and the policy messaging from Washington, D.C., and, you know, the Secretary of Defense's office, etc. So anyway, but the point was, David, was that particular uh, job, that particular role, two years long— Uh, It was relentless and it was intense and it was, you know, four hours of sleep a night, get up the next morning, uh, get your situational awareness of what's happened so that you can give that best military advice to your leader and be able to, uh, you know, help that leader be successful. And so that, that those two years were a defining moment in my career. They really stretched me to a point that I didn't realize that I could be at and, uh, and I grew from that.
1: And I'm sure that had to get your name on the radar, maybe, or kind of elevate you a little bit in other circles. Yeah, I'll give you another one. Um, uh,
0: on October 12, 2000, I was working in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon, and I got a call at like 6.30 in the morning uh, from... Uh, a gent who I worked with, he was telling me he wasn't going to be in. He was the duty officer in the Pentagon, and he was stuck there because USS Cole had been bombed by Al Qaeda terrorists and aid in Aden, Yemen. And um, and then that was the first call. And then the second call I got was about a half an hour later that said, "Pack your bags, you're going to Yemen." And so I ended up on wow. the airplane with the Foreign Emergency Support Team, which is the crisis team that we send wherever there's a an act of international terrorism that um, impacts, you know, American uh, people, American uh, forces, etc. And so I went with the FEST to aid in Yemen, and I was there for, you know, a month and a half or whatever it was, while we worked on the recovery of USS Cole. That was another one of those scenarios where, you know, folded into a brand new organization providing, you know, the best guidance to the Joint Task Force commander and also to uh, Ambassador Barbara Bodine, who was the American ambassador uh, to Yemen at that time, you know, and functioning sort of in that same role as an advisor on strategy and communication. That was another one of those situations where, you know, you, you, you get you sleep when you can and work around the clock because basically the mission's not going to stop and it's coming at you at a thousand miles an hour. That stretches you, that, you know, pulls you in a way that you're never going to, go back to being who you were before that.
1: So to that point, I'm going to 180 us and we're going to come back around full circle and uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little little bit here, sir. Its Leadership is not always cotton candy and rainbows. I mean, we're humans. We have a life. When through, there had to have been a time somewhat in your career where you Yes, you were stretched from a, I have to accomplish this task, and I may not have done this task before, and you have to rise to the occasion, but talk to me a little bit about the personal aspect of leadership, because it had to have been a, a time or two you didn't want to lead, you're having a bad day, something's wrong at the house, something, and you still had to get up and lead people. Everybody has a bad right. day, right?
0: Right, right. I mean, but <sighs> so so I have a couple of values, David, that I emphasize to people that I think are key. And the first one is, you know, honor and integrity, conducting yourself uh, in the ways that your parents taught you to, you know, on the playground. Be kind to other people. Listen. Say things like please and thank you. Mm. And, and, you know, just, you know, don't be a jerk. Uh, that's one. Two is about the relationships you build with people you know, and oftentimes these are lifelong relationships. Relationships are about give and take, okay? If you're a taker all the time taking, you're not going to have relationships with people because, you know, uh, they're not going to want to interact with you. Sure. I have two dozen people that reach out to me on a regular basis for mentoring advice and guidance, and it's because of those relationships that I've created with my team members over time. And, you know, I'll get a call or an email. And invariably, I get two or three a week, you know, when I, you know, and, and some people say I give too much of my time, but that's okay because, you know, this is what it's all about. The team members that you go into the fight with, you know, you're, you're bonded together for life, and, and then the third thing I would tell you, David, the third sort of big value um, that I think is really, really important is persistence. And we talked a little bit about that. You mentioned that up front. Um, I've never been the smartest guy in the room. My success is, you know, it flows from being persistent, always getting back up when you get knocked down, you know, just being smart enough and being... But being ferociously persistent, having an immense personal and professional will to whatever that mission is, you're going to attack that mission. You're going to get it done. Think of Winston Churchill. You know, during the Battle of Britain, what did he say? Never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never. I mean, that's the kind
1: of persistence that you got to bring to the table. How? What is it? An upbringing that gave you that? That instilled that in you? Sports? Your family? Because not everybody has that.
0: You know. I, I, I don't know. So, uh, you know, there's recently been a book called Grit, and it kind of, you know, covers that same sort of thing, having that immense personal professional will. And I don't know if it's something that's – I think everybody has a certain amount of it, Um, you know, and it flows from your parents saying, you know, make your bed, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it's about – getting the mission done. It's about getting to the end state, achieving the goal. And you always just internally knew that. And and being able to see that goal, even if it's, you know, a thousand miles down the road. You know, when I, you know, my wife always jokes about how, you know, when I was a really junior officer, I told her I was gonna be an admiral and she thought it was a big joke. There was always a plan, you know. Some people say, you know, oh, I was very fortunate and I worked and worked hard and then I got promoted. And yeah, I did, but I always had a plan of, you know, being that guy, you know. Yeah. It, it, and it it was driven by a ferocious desire to succeed in my business.
1: Um, you talk about people and your inner circle climbing through the ranks, and we had this conversation at breakfast. I was saying. At times there's there's a team that gets you from A to B and another team that gets you from B to C. Did you have to I don't want to say leave people behind that has a bad connotation to it, but climbing through the ranks in 30 years, a, did your circles change throughout those years? So, Am I so, asking that question so David, properly? I'm
0: not a hundred percent sure that I agree with you, and let me tell you why. I think when you create those mentoring relationships, um you bring people along. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I've had teammates that I worked with, you know, 25 years ago that I still collaborate with today. And in the military, I had people that I, you know, worked with at one level that I made sure that they were at that next level with me hmm. um, because I trusted their judgment and I valued what they brought to the table, different, diverse perspectives. Um you know, I have a young man that I work with now that uh, was my exec three times on active duty,
1: and he's civilian now. He's a civilian and now, now and we together. work
0: together wow. now.
1: That's awesome. Um,
0: I, I I think that you know, uh, you have as a leader, you have a duty to develop the people around you. Wow. Okay, and it's about bringing the you know it, when you're entrusted. With that very special role of being a leader, part of what you do is bring the people up around you. It's all about people. You collaborate with them. And when you're making a decision, you know, I mentioned before about having this team around you that's advising you all the time, you know, and I'll say this, I have what I consider a personal board of directors. I have people that I've worked with, you know, that I've known for 40 years from, from junior high school, you know, who are now... Uh, tech CEOs and venture capitalists. And, you know, I, I like, for example, I go to Florida, a, you know, every couple of years and meet with a group that was at my junior high lunch table. Wow. And we have a weekend together and they're all enormously successful. And they're all more successful than me, you know, much more successful than I am. And, you know, and I learn from these folks. And so you always have to have this mindset a growth mindset of being able to learn from the people around you so as a leader you have a team around you to give you their best professional advice but you also have to be open-minded and take your information from different sources you know and then when you make that decision whatever that decision is say here's what we're going to do and here's my thinking always let your team know what you're thinking because in that way they can better at yeah well there's, there's buy-in because they were part of the decision, one, but also, you know, they know how you think so they can be in Sipatico. Hmm.
1: I don't want to put words in your mouth and you say these defining moments in life. I remember at breakfast one time you were telling me a story about, I think, right before you made Flag Officer and there was a, an opportunity in the civilian sector. Yeah. And you contemplated that for for a little bit we don't got to get into names and stuff well can you tell me your thought process behind that
0: so um and it was it it was literally (laughs) uh maybe two months before my board was set to meet to determine if i was going to be a flag officer or not i was in 06 i was a captain which is a colonel in other services and i was um in a command assignment and a former boss of mine called me and said, "Hey, I want you to interview with this guy in New York, and you know they're looking for uh, someone to be president of this company that they've just acquired. It's a forty million dollar company." Did you have Venture. feelers out, or they just contacted you Not, out of the blue? No, he re- he, he reached because it's one of one of my mentor-mentee relationships. It's that relationship, uh, you know, a former boss of mine. I. I try to, you know, stay in touch with my former bosses. Sure. And I seek their guidance and counsel periodically. And so he reached out to me and said, I want you to go interview with this guy in New York. And, uh, and so I went up and I spent the day and they offered me the job. Wow. And, um, and I had to, this was a tough, tough decision because it's like, okay, be president of a $40 million venture backed company or, or continue on the same path. And, you know, my my former four-star boss said, "Hey Hal, these opportunities don't come on, come along very often. So I want you to really think about this. There's no guarantee that you're going to be a flag officer, but this is something that you could do really, really well at. And you and you,
1: you're 20. And, I mean, you could have retired right then. Oh, and yeah, there. I could have retired. Great career, I everything. Yep. You could have yep. retired and jumped on that, like you said, president of a venture-backed company. That is not a small deal. That is not you know advertised in the classified ads. That's a, who yeah. you know. Yeah, and and,
0: it- and so, um, and I'll tell you who." gave me the defining guidance was my wife's cousin, you know, my wife's cousin, uh, Wayne Hewitt had been uh, CEO of a couple of different business units at general electric under Jack Welch. And, um, and I talked to him and, uh, and he said to me, he said, you know how he said, if you're being offered this opportunity, it means you'll be on that, you know, radar in the corporate sector for other opportunities later on. He said, "You're at that level." He said, "So what you got to do is ask yourself if you're going to be comfortable giving up on your dream of serving in the military at the highest levels uh, mm. to go do that." He says, "You know, considering that you know you'll probably have other opportunities later. Mm. That's that's going to be your choice. That's that's your dilemma." How long did you contemplate on the decision before uh, you? Not very long. <laughs> not very long because you know one side is about. You know, uh, going to the corporate world. The other is really about do I fulfill my dream and what I think is my destiny. Yeah, and I, wow. I just had to stay on that path because I felt in my heart, you know, um, you know, and and, wow. and I mean, I mean, the chance of being selected uh, to get a star is is very, 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 very low. But I just felt like I was on that path. How you know? long? And, and so I I turned that opportunity down. And I talked to a colleague of mine who was also a mentor of mine. And I told him about the opportunity and he was eventually hired into that president's role. So you made that referral? Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so,
0: and I stayed on and I was, you know, selected you, for flag and then I took my next assignment. And how long ago, how long from you
1: turned it down to when you got the
0: one star per se? Uh, it was, you know, on the, the next, you know, selection board that met. So it was, I don't know. I, 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 was officially, I was unofficially. Uh, well, okay, let's just say this: I was officially informed, uh, probably about five months later. Five months, okay. Yeah. That's what I was getting yeah. at. So, you know, but I, I, I made the right choice for me. You gotta, you gotta do what's in your heart. And at the heart of it, I, I mean, I love to lead people. That's what I'm really, really good at. I might have been a public affairs officer, you know, and and some people associate that with being a technical expert in a certain field. But I mean, what I've always done best is lead people. And so I had the opportunity to do that as a flag officer, wow. having you know big teams with big goals. Not
1: only lead people, I mean, at that level, and I know nothing about it. So you do you, you set policy at that level. I mean, you well, affect- Well, you advise. Right? You Good advise on
0: policy. You don't okay. really set policy. I, I had a chance to work on some big policy issues when I was in the Secretary of Defense's office. That touches tens and, of thousands, hundreds of yeah, thousands of people. Yeah. And so that's – but that's part of being a leader in the military. You know, you grow into those kinds of roles and you're advising people Mm -hmm. who do set policy.
1: You don't have to name names, but I'm going to put you on the spot again, sir. What was the – a time when it was a personal, person-to-person, just tough interaction that you had to lead? You didn't see eye-to-eye with somebody. You didn't get along with somebody. I mean, 30 years, there had to have been a few. (sighs) You know, I, I'm going to tell you
0: something, David. I think that at the heart of it—okay, uh, so let's do this. <clears throat> I would tell you there, there are there a couple of different pieces to my career, right? I served in the military for a long time. I, I now serve in the civilian sector. i uh you know, I'm deeply involved in some nonprofit work around the veterans workforce development space, making sure veterans have careers and job opportunities, you know, and I also have a a, a role in uh, my company as the head of uh, military and veterans engagement for uh, Arizona's largest uh, energy company, clean energy company, uh, Arizona Public Service. And I would tell you that um, uh, I've had some challenging experiences i've certainly had more challenging experiences working in the civilian and nonprofit sector than i had in the military wow. and let me tell you why i again it's it's not i'm i'm not trying to say that the military system of leadership is better than other systems but it takes individuals and it brings them up in a certain system and a certain type of behavior is expected mm-hmm. from those individuals And look, it can be tough, it can be hard-nosed, it can be head-to-head, but at the end of the day, it's collaborative. And you walk off into the sunset and you execute when the boss says execute. Um, You know, in in the civilian sector, you can run into issues like people who, for example, dig in their heels and don't want to work with you, like staff members. Mm. Uh, Or you can run into individuals, individual bosses who can be extreme... Micromanagers, which is absolutely not the way that I do business, uh, and it just makes hmm. you know your getting your job done a lot harder. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you fall back on those values that I talked about earlier, one sort of your your own honor and integrity, the way that you do business, uh, two your network that may help you and advise you and mentor you through a tough situation. And three, being persistent i got to make sure i got three fingers up there—being persistent in every time, you know, in dealing with that person or that individual, you know, you continue on. You don't shrink from the fight. You know, as we say, you run to the sound of the guns, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about going head-to-head with somebody, but it's about engaging in an intellectual way and being persistent in um, carrying on. Yes. And uh, and I and I think I, I can think of a couple of instances that were challenging after I've taken off the uniform, and in you know in all those uh, instances, sort of those values that I talked about really
1: kind of carried me through. So you took off the uniform. Tell me about your transition out. It was tough.
0: It was tough. I mean, you know, you'll have these friends, uh, all of whom. You know, or are still wearing the uniform or or whatever. They haven't made the transition themselves, and they'll say, "Oh, you're going to have no problems." You know, you're you're an admiral. You're going to have no problems. And but it doesn't work that way because there's there are different things, there are different skills that are uh, prevalent in the civilian workforce that aren't prevalent in the military. You know, in the military community, Uh, the military community. Uh, is great. It's amazing at collaboration, and people are are willing to work together and deal with each other regardless of differences. Uh, and they don't hold grudges, and you move forward. Generally speaking, um, hmm. in this and, and it's uh, at the end of the day in the military, it's about execution. It's about getting the mission done. That's what matters. Um, in in the civilian workforce, there's an element of looking good and sounding good. That's about how you impress those around you, sure. and the the networking piece that you're never taught in the military because that's not something you do. Interesting. Okay, so that's called fraternization in the military, and it's against <laughs> it's against military rules. Fraternization in the, uh, in, in military the civilian workforce. Networking. That's how you get ahead, and so that's a challenge, and being able to just you know so so there are there are different systems. And it's not that one is better than the other. It's just, it's different. And if you want to transition from one to the other,
1: you've got to learn the other system. Interesting. You got to learn the other system. Wrap this up. We live in the great state of Arizona. Um, Absolutely, most of, most of the guests flew in. We have the luxury, I'm going to say, uh, to live here. it's The weather's great most months out of the year. But there, what are you doing in Arizona? There's a lot of veterans in Arizona. There's a lot of support here in Arizona for veterans. Yeah. Paint that so, picture. So
0: first of all, one in 10 adults in the state of Arizona is either a veteran or currently serving 680,000. Uh, we have about 6 million adults in the state. So one in 10, It's a big deal. uh, it's a very, uh, veteran heavy state. Wow. Um, uh, we've in working with, um, the governor's office and one of the major nonprofits, the Arizona Coalition for Military Families, we created the Arizona Corporate Council on Veteran Careers back in 2016, which is an organization. It's comprised of some of the biggest companies in the state of Arizona that employ veterans, and we're really about fostering an environment that uh, and and an understanding and a learning to some extent. Uh, for corporations, for companies, uh, to understand the value that veterans bring to the workforce, you know that sort of mission focus, that um, you know honor courage and commitment kind of thing, the ethos that that ethos that the military member brings to the civilian workforce, and so we're we're doing a number of things around that. Uh, do you think veterans are often misunderstood in the workforce? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so we're trying to help employers better understand the value. I mean, you know, uh, Duke University just last year did a study of civilian corporations. And even in companies that supposedly have veteran hiring preferences, Mm -hmm. there's still a systemic bias against veterans uh, from those who haven't served. I mean, that's, that's what the research shows. It's not me, it's not Hal saying it. It's what the research shows. And so we're trying to help
1: educate. You know, on that front, what can the veteran do better to to take more charge to give themselves a leg up to get hired and learn your business, learn Thank your business, you. learn your business, and create relationships with all those uh, people around you? I didn't know you were going to say that, but let me tell you something. at twenty eight years old, I was running a tech startup on paper, we got valued at two point one, venture back two point one million dollars. biggest crash and burn ever. I won't go into it. But the reason the company failed, because I didn't know my business. Yeah. I had no clue what I was doing. I yeah. had no business running that company. I had no business starting that company. <laughs> All the above. So I'm glad you said that. You gotta that, yourself, that, that You've got to educate yourself, man.
0: You've got to educate yourself. I can learn, talk for the rest of the know, day. You know, learn
1: whatever business that is. Just learn about
0: it. You know, learn as much as you can. Be voracious. Have an open mind. Read. Uh, absorb the information around you. Learn from other people. Bring, bring on more mentors that can uh, help
1: you understand. I literally feel like I've had the same conversation with myself and I can't believe you're saying that right. I I'm, I could not agree more. Um, we got to wrap this up. I wish we Absolutely. could talk all day. In conclusion, we had some people write in and I, I just have to ask this. This is not my question. I mean, this is an, an anonymous, I think Air Force veteran out of Texas or I forget to be honest. What's a te- second best veteran state, by the way, Texas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we,
0: we have a, a, a healthy back and forth with them because they like to th- say that they're the most veteran-friendly.
1: So. Interesting. So are there correlations, coalitions like yours in, in a lot of states trying uh, to do they this? They just created one, yeah. yeah. In Texas? Yep. How do we pull this together on a national level? Or is that well, even a...
0: We, we we need to. And maybe, you know, so like... I work with a number of organizations here in the in the state of Arizona that have sort of a national focus as well on the veterans, you know, on the veterans hiring front. I think there are organizations out there that could be that umbrella. You know, like the one of your guests is going to be A.P. Powell from the Arizona Foundation. I think that they could help with that. I think there are others that could help with that, focusing on bringing the different organizations from the different states together. Because then what you get is cross-pollination of veterans from different states that look for job and work opportunities and veteran-friendly companies. That's and you know deal. what? The cream always rises to the top. That's we live deal. in a meritocracy, David. And so you know those, those companies that are really not talking about it, not talking a great game about supporting veterans, but really are supporting veterans, they will rise to the top. That's true. And, and it's, it's important that we share that information so other vets are knowledgeable about it.
1: What's a tactical piece of advice? This is the question from our uh, anonymous write-in. Not like work harder or anything like that. What's a tactical piece of advice you would give your 30-year-old self? God, I
0: I sound like a broken record today, <laughs> but you know what? I got to go back to persistence, David. Never ever give up. And a lot of times never people... give up. People settle. That's why they're not more successful than they are. The most successful people in history are those who were driven and had an outsized intent to do something in a particular field, whether it's sports or entertainment or uh, veteran workforce development or driving an entrepreneurial company in a certain direction, you know, creating products and services that consumers want. Whatever, whatever that is, the people who have been hugely successful never gave up. You know, they had X number of failures, hmm. and they kept on going.
1: Yeah, it gets hard. They for, stayed but, in a fight. For every every reason under the sun, people give up. Financial, omnipotent. emotional. Persist- emotional fa- yeah, you got to stay in the fight. Persistence is everything. It's the most wow.
0: important ingredient. It's absolutely the 100%. most important
1: ingredient. Well, I want to wrap this up by saying, and I wasn't going to do this, but you really struck a chord in me and got me wild up. Veterans, learn your craft, especially if you're in business or entrepreneurship. Learn your craft. The get up early, the work hard, the wake up at 5 a.m. That's all fine and dandy. Sure, watch those motivational videos, but learn and study your craft. Take it from him. Take it from me. Arizona, let's continue to support our veterans. It's a big deal. Let's support the community. Sir, thank you so much. David, thank you. Great being on the show. Awesome.